Okay. Well, welcome back for another edition of Spirit of the Game. It is the month of June, and this is Ed Mate. And Lewis Harry. And uh, we got a fun one, I think, lined up for this month. We're following up on the PGA Championship, but this month we're going to talk primarily about what we're calling the most debated rules of golf. We've covered uh, rules we would change. We've covered the most violated rules, and now we're going to talk about the most debated rules. And this is sort of an informal list that's just we kind of put our heads together and thought about what are the things we hear all the time you can imagine where we're probably headed when it comes to the biggie. Uh, but yeah, I think it'll be kind of a fun chat. So this is just to preface this. We're, we're not fixing anything today. This no. is not what we're going to fix. This is not what we're going to change. There's no policy being pushed through through the board of directors here. For, for, <laughs> That's right. For the these boss, this is just being basically a mirror of what we hear all the time. Yeah, this is just purely, and really, I don't even know how much debate it's going on. And we're just touching on what is being debated out in the world. Yeah. Uh, people who are interested in the rules or when the rules come up, this is just purely diving a little bit deeper into the discussion of the debate on some of these topics. Exactly. So since in the spirit of following up on the PGA, uh, to me, the most notable ruling that came out of the PGA Championship, one uh, by Brooks Kepka, amazing, uh, his fifth major, was the ball overhanging the lip. This came on Saturday. Lee Hodges paired with Jordan Spieth. We did a rules video on it. Um, I did an impromptu rules video on it, so I'm sitting there enjoying the PGA, uh, watching, and um, the commentators, of course, driving me crazy because nobody in the broadcast booth knows the rules. And, and again, this frustrates the heck out of me, as I'm sure it does many other rules nerds. Come on, bring in Tom Carpus, bring in uh, Brad Gregory. They've got him there, but they don't even have enough knowledge of the rules to know what was going on. So just to frame this, Lee Hodges, I think it was on 14 or 15, hits a putt, overhangs the lip. They stayed with it the entire time. The ball overhang the, over, overhung the lip of the hole for a good 33, 34 seconds. And the only commentator, only thing that was being shared was that that ball's still moving. You could hear Jordan Spieth saying the ball's still moving. Not one person mentioned that, oh, by the way, there's a rule for this. When a ball is overhanging the the lip of a hole, you're allowed a reasonable amount of time to get to the ball plus the count of 10. And if the ball falls in before the count of 10, very good. The ball was hold, falls in out of the count of 10, the ball is still hold, but you have to add a penalty stroke. So to me, this is one when it comes up, it is debated whether that's right or wrong. Um, and again, the very commentate, the things Jordan Spieth was saying about the ball still moving was exactly why the rule got changed uh, because the idea was you can't play a moving ball. You can barely, but you can see it moving. Again, this rule 13.3 over supersede like that. I got the rule number because sure I just looked it up. Um, supersede. So what are your thoughts on this one? I think the heart of the, the debate is, you know, we were talking about this earlier, the heart of the debate is just people with misinformation on what the rule contains. And you know, on Twitter or online or wherever else you, you see these debates or these debates comes up, the, the heart of the debate is, well, you can't hit a moving ball. And you know, why, why can't they say the ball's still moving, they can't hit a moving ball? And that's kind of where everything stems from all of this. But when we talk about making a stroke at a moving ball, we're talking about it anywhere else on the golf course other than when the ball is overhanging the hole. Specifically for the situation where we have the ball overhanging the hole, now 13.3 is going to overtake any other rule in the book. 
So throw away the the argument about you can't hit a moving ball. The ball's still moving. Everything contained in 13 out three is going to tell you that once that ball has overhung the hole for more than 10 seconds, we're going to treat it at rest. No matter if we think microscopically <laughs> it's, it's wiggling or rotating on that one last dimple, right? The rules are going to tell us otherwise. So I think where the people debate, well, that's a bad ruling or that's unfair or this is it's those people just don't fully understand what the rule is telling us. Right. And the history there, this was written for good reason. There's a very notable, don't know the year, but it was a ball. I think the player was done January. We waited literally minutes to, for a ball to fall in the hole. So when that does happen, we need to have a way of dealing with it. By the way, um, thank you for pointing out in my video, my incorrect use of interpretations. We went from decisions to interpretations and now we're at clarifications. Is that, is that correct? Well, we had both from 2019 to last year, we had both interpretations and clarifications. Okay. The interpretations is where are, is what you're thinking of is was in the book of what we used to call decisions. Okay. We've done away with all of those terms. Now we're just solely going off of clarifications. Okay. Now, I'll try to get that clarified in my head going forward. Okay. Go. So that was number one on our list. What, what, what do we got next on the most debated rules? So before we get into the bigger ones, the last one we'll touch here has to deal with uh, something else that happened in competitive golf, us open qualifier about two and a half ish weeks ago in Illinois, Illini country club that hosted a us open qualifier for, I think when I read their 45th year straight or something, they've hosted wow. a local qualifier. So Unfortunately for this year, they had aerated greens during their qualifier. Now, unbeknownst to this one player who, by the way, shot a course record 62 to take the medalist spot, later realized that what he was fixing all day was aeration holes, and we're going to get into the whole topic of why you can't fix an aeration hole. This player realized his mistake, reported it to the committee, and unfortunately landed himself a disqualification and lost out on his spot to move on to final qualifying and... Unfortunately, that 62 goes away. All I know is if you can repair Asian holes and shoot 62, there must be a major advantage gained if you can do that. <laughs> yeah, you know, aside from the aeration holes, you know, getting around a golf course in 62 strokes, yeah, it's, not, it's not a fluke. Yeah. I mean, maybe it is. I don't know, but yeah. I've never done it. So. Yeah. so, yeah, why is that? That's one. Why can't I? I mean, I heard this. Again, this probably is not a hotly debated topic unless it comes up, just like overhanging, not a hotly debated topic unless it comes up. But when they do come up, this is when the rules get a black eye in the court of public opinion. That is stupid. Guy shot 62. Why can't I repair that? What would be your answer? Yeah, it's funny. It's funny you said it it doesn't, the debate doesn't come up until something happens. And, you know, whenever something happens that the masses view as unfair or harshly penalizing, it seems like the rules are stupid crowd comes out in droves. (laughs) Which, whether that's on Twitter or you know, where, wherever else, in the, in the comments yeah, section yeah. on Facebook, yeah. they seem to come out, you know, with pitchforks yeah. in, in hands and, you know, oh, another example of why the rules are stupid. But yeah. getting back to our aeration hole topic here, ever since the last four years with the, with the major revision in 2019, we, we've pretty much been able to repair anything on the putting green with a, with a couple exceptions mixed in there. Spike marks, ball marks, shoe damage, animal damage, a lot of those things that are created by an animal or a person, we're going to be able to fix and get and you know not have a penalty attached and we're going to be able to restore that putting green as much as we can. 
Unfortunately, we're still left with a few things that are off limits. Things that are done by irrigation or rain. Those are natural things that occur. Rain's a natural force. We're going to have to leave it alone. Any natural surface imperfections like disease or just the way the green normally is, you got to leave it alone. That's just the way the green is. The third thing that comes up is that are things that are done from normal maintenance practices. So verticutting streaks, aeration holes, things that are done in a normal practice to maintain the condition of that green. Unfortunately, those are things you're going to have to leave alone. You're not going to be able to fix those things under Rule 13. Aeration holes fall under that normal maintenance practice. It's a normal maintenance practice that happens once or twice a year to maintain the best putting surface that we can. And unfortunately, aeration holes, are they're put there for a purpose. We're not just punching holes in the green just because we want to punch holes in the green. The aeration hole is put there for a purpose, and the reason we don't want you fixing it is because we don't want you caving it back into the green to eliminate the purpose of the aeration hole being there in the first place. Now, I understand it creates a less than ideal putting surface for when they are there. Now, I don't know what the specific aeration that this course did for this qualifier, whether it was very small tining or a deep core aerification. I don't know. Regardless of what type of a hole that was created, you're still, you still got to leave it alone. It's something you're not going to be able to fix unless there's a model local rule in place, which there was not in this case. So I think the real issue here is the ball coming to rest in an aeration hole. Mm-hmm. And I think the, there's, a, there's sort of a universal um, misunderstanding, I think, among golfers where you're always entitled to a perfect, you know, nobody likes to putt when their ball's sitting in a hole. You know, we all want to have a nice, you know, uh, get that ball started out rolling and not bouncing. So I don't know exactly what this player did, but I guarantee you other players in the same qualifier were probably guilty of over-repairing the area that they were replacing the ball in. Uh, that would be my guess. I don't know if he was repairing them in right directly in front of his ball. Um, but again, a good reminder that if your ball comes to rest in a depression in the green, whether it's an aeration hole or just a, an imperfection, um, if it's any kind of damage, go ahead and repair it. Um, a lot more liberal today than it was before 2019. But you're not entitled to a level lie when your ball lies on a putting green. Um, so I, that would be my guess is that he was probably repairing it where the ball was lying. Possibly, or even you mentioned even re- replacing it possibly on a exactly. different spot than right. where it needs Tweaking to be Tweaking it a little bit to the left or to the right, and I guarantee you players are doing that. It's very hard to put your ball back in a hole because yeah. you know it's going to get a very bad start on that. On that. So, sure. yeah. Well, and what's nice about the rules is that if we do, maybe we happen to not be exactly on top of the aerational, but we're just to the side of it and we can't get a ball to re- be replaced at that exact spot. Well, we have a completely different rule that handles that situation. So yeah. Yeah. I don't know exactly. I didn't read enough. The article didn't go enough into the exact circumstances of, was he repairing it to this extent? Was he doing something else? The aerationals. So the article didn't give me enough information to really get into the story, but either way, it's one of those things where when aerationals come up, there's a lot of divided opinion on, yeah. on what should happen with yeah, You them. described it very well. So, okay, now that we got our juices flowing on debated rules, those two admittedly are, like you said, that's the stupid crowd, or the rules are stupid crowd coming out because these were timely and topical. The other, the, the, the remainder of our list of stuff are the perennials that are always open. So there's nothing going on in the rules. There hasn't been an incident. There hasn't been a ball overhanging the lip or anything like that. What does the golf community want to complain about? And what are the areas 
what are the biggies? So number one on my list, and we came up again on this one, when we came up with rules, we would change. We're not going to relive that, but it's the 14 club rule. It's amazing to me, uh, the variation of opinion on this one. You have people that think it should be something more than 14. You think others think it should be like you and I should be less than, less than 14, but it is definitely a, a, a rule that gets debated a lot. Uh, fundamentally, the principle here is golf is a game of skill, and we're going to limit you in the number of implements you can use. As I always like to say, it's a, a game of skill, not how strong your caddy is or, or how big your bank account is so you can buy a golf game. So that's really what we're trying to solve for here. Um, again, if it was up to me, we'd reduce it. The practical part of me says that's never going to happen. And I think I kind of land on, you know what, we're not changing it. Let's just hold steady on 14. I don't know what argument could be made that it should be increased other than the manufacturers would love to see that because that just means they'd sell more equipment. I think for the, and this goes a little bit back to a conversation we had a long time ago about, I brought up a comment about someone a long time ago mentioned to me that the rules of golf are written for competitive golf. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it doesn't apply to the, the everyday golf. I still disagree with that comment, but for the everyday golfer that doesn't play by the book or doesn't exactly follow the rules of golf to a T. I think they're the ones who are on the side of, well, I should be able to carry as many clubs as I want because I should be able to have as many choices at my disposal as possible. Why why should I be limited to an arbitrary number of 14, right? Right. I I should be able to, if I can carry them, and I'm guessing the people who are making this argument aren't carrying their own bag. That's just a <laughs> a small guess on my part. Yeah, maybe maybe a snotty guess on my part. But yeah. I'm guessing that the people who aren't going to want to abide by the 14 club rule are probably riding in a cart. So why do they care if they're carrying 20 clubs? They're not lugging them on their back. And then again, it goes back to that I should have as many options at my disposal as I want. Right. So I guess that's that's that side of the debate. The side of the debate that I think we're on is that it's in with the less amount of options at your disposal, it's going to increase the required need for skill to get around that golf course with fewer options. Yeah. And I can definitely see why with the amazing, we saw this weekend at the PGA, Dustin Johnson with a nine wood. Um, I mean, there, there are situations where having um, more, more implements would be fun. I I'm, I'm a, admittedly, I love messing around with putters and depending on what, what's going on with my golf game, um, which usually isn't very good. Um, I'd like to have a, a variety of putter choices. So um, again, in, in the wedge game enthusiasts would have five wedges instead of three. So, um, but I again, I think fourteen is where we're going to be. There's there's always going to be those wanting more, and and again for those purists like you and you and me, because again, it, when you eliminate a club, you're increasing skill. Well, it wasn't that all long. It wasn't that long ago we saw Phil Mickelson with a two driver yeah. setup during yeah. during I can't remember what event that was. Yeah, I think but, it was the U.S. Open. Yeah, so it, I guess there's always a chance for just like our ball debate, where there's a model local rule proposed for a, a reduced golf ball. I guess there's always a chance that a model local rule comes along that could possibly limit the yeah. amount of clubs in the bag. Okay. So all right, that's You're, something what, in the future. What do you got next here on the bigger items? So this one, and this one commonly comes up during rules seminars that we give just because of one, you know, with how long they've been around, there's still a lack of understanding of penalty areas in general, probably because people still call them water hazards this day. 
terminology aside, with the lack of understanding of options around penalty areas and what do you do versus yellow versus red or, you know, the different color stakes, some of that lack of understanding probably comes into the debate of why do we even need two colors anyways? Why can't we just simplify it all with one color, one set of options, and just be done with it? And, and the reason why, and this kind of going into the, the heart of the debate here, is we still need two, two colors to differentiate the two types of penalty areas. And a saying that I always use in rule seminars that helps the light bulb click on for most people, just differentiating between the two, which, by the way, if you don't know the difference between the two, literally the only difference we're talking about here is one more option versus the other. Everything else is the same. So the way, the way I always try and have the light bulb go off with people in rules seminars is if we think about penalty areas with yellow versus red, and most commonly with yellow, you're going to have to go over it to get to where you're going. If you're playing a hole with a red penalty area, you can probably navigate the hole without ever encountering it if you're hitting the shots where you're supposed to hit them. But a hole with a yellow penalty area, you're going to have to navigate that obstacle at some point during the hole to complete it and to get, to get, to get the ball in the hole. So the way I always try to differentiate is with yellow penalty areas, those are going to catch short shots. Red penalty areas are going to catch stray shots. So what I mean by that is the yellow penalty area is catching a short shot. You didn't quite navigate it enough to get to where you're going. You were short of the objective. With the yellow or the red penalty area with catching a stray shot, you went off the path somewhere. You, you delineated between the line you were supposed to take on the hole and you, caught, you got caught up somewhere else. So that's kind of the way, and when I use that analogy in rule seminars, I do see some people have the light bulb click on. So because those are so different, because one is a required navigation versus the other, that's the reason why we need the differentiation. If we were just going to have red be the, the end-all, be-all in this whole penalty area debate, then there could, we could possibly get into some situations where you didn't navigate the obstacle, but we're going to let you go over it anyways with your relief options. And that's not exactly the intent of that obstacle to begin with. So because that's not the way that hole was designed and that obstacle was put there, we don't want to let you just skip over it. We're not going to let you pay a price and skip over it. Yeah, that's really well said. And um, I would just add that the original 13 rules, and again, these were local rules, as Thomas Bagel pointed out last time, for one competition, so we shouldn't make too much of them. But in that very first sort of chronicled rules, it said if your ball should come to rest in water or other watery filth, I was like that. Um, you shall drop behind the water and allow your opponent a stroke for the misfortune. And the reason I quote that or semi-quote that is the water hazard rule, I know that's dated, the penalty, now the uh, penalty area rule, is intended not to be a stroke and distance penalty. It's intended to be uh, a penalty where you drop in the vicinity of the water and not have to go back under stroke and distance. And as a practical matter, if we were to mark all penalty areas as yellow, uh, you would then be forcing a stroke and distance penalty for those balls that are caught by those stray shots that are caught. You, there's no physical place keeping the point where the ball entered or crossed the edge of the penalty area and going back. You physically cannot find a location, so you might as well go back to the tee. So I always think of it that way, that we don't want to force a stroke and distance penalty, and that's why we have to have two different options and what's nice to know is stroke and distance still is an option for any penalty area which if you 
you look into Rule 17.1, you'll see stroke and distance as the first available relief option for either yellow or red. But kind of like you were saying, we that it's not intended to make you go back like a ball lost or out of bounds. Mm-hmm. When you have a ball lost or out of bounds, you're breaking the chain of events from green to T or from T to green. Mm-hmm. So the only way you can get that chain rejoined is to go back to where the chain was last intact, yeah. which is why stroke and distance exists for that situation. For a ball in a penalty area, you're still on the golf course. You never left the golf course. You know where your ball lies. You're virtually certain where your ball lies. So the chain really hasn't been broken in that scenario. So that's why we're giving you those other relief options. Yeah, and speaking of, following up on the PGA, there was a ruling that maybe you can quickly uh, recap with Phil Mickelson, and it is a change in 2019. Uh, so before you get to that, just just putting a bow on this one, no change. I think we have to keep red. We have to keep yellow. Uh, as much as the rule makers tried, and I was uh, part of that conversation in 2019 to simplify uh, to one, it, it just is a very, you end up with a pretty bad outcome if you try to go with either all yellow or all red. Neither is good. I think we have to, and I like the way you said it. It's not that much difference. We're only talking about one, the two club length option for a red penalty area is not that big, the harder thing to understand. No, and, and again, it's the reason why we still need to differentiate is because they're they're serving two different purposes. Even though we're they're the same, essentially the same relief options, less one for yellow. They're serving two different purposes when they're marked two different ways. Like like I said, you have to navigate one. Right. One is requiring you to get over it. That's testing your skill. I, I always think of a round of golf. Not to get on a, a long tangent here. I think of a round of golf as as a test of eighteen questions. Mm-hmm. Each hole is going to ask you a different question. And a hole with a yellow penalty area, the question it's going to ask you is, can you navigate that yellow penalty area you know, in one stroke? That, that's going to yeah. be the question. Right. And if you can't answer that question, if we're going to let you skip over that question by calling it red and giving you the option to drop on the other side, then it's, we're, it's failing to do what it's intended to yeah, do. Yeah, and kind of staying with your metaphor, I'll probably mess this up, is if you decide to ask a question that wasn't on the test – we still want you to be able to finish the test. Right. So that's where red comes in. So tell, right. re- remind what happened with Phil this weekend. So it sounded like Phil had had a ball in a penalty area. He was going to take his relief using the back on the line relief option. Now this, I'm going to preface this by saying Phil had some other misinformation in his head, just based on the conversation he had with the referee when I was reading it. But, he was going to take back on the line relief. He had figured out where he'd last crossed the penalty area, where his line was going to go from the flag through that point, and he was going to go final point on that line. He was going to drop the ball. He looked like he was dropping the ball one or two club lengths off of that line. Now, in 2019, you were able to find one club length relief area to either side of the line at the spot you chose, and you're going to drop the ball in that relief area. That was in 2019. In Phil's head, just based on the conversation he had with this referee, it sounded like Phil thought that he ne- he got a two club length relief area from that line. So one, he, he might have been dropping in the wrong place even back in 2019. Right. You know, another conversation. We may have to go back and review some of Phil's drops <laughs> from the last four years. That's you know, all him, Phil needs. Yeah, you know, yeah. Him and he. Let's put him and Tiger and compare who who made the worst back on the line drop. Yeah. Yeah. But anyways, you know, referee comes in, kind of interjects himself, and says, "Hey." Just want to make sure you're getting the ball in the right place. It looked like you may have dropped off the line. You know, Phil argues with this referee. He doesn't think that's right. You know, let's 
let's think of who's right here, Phil Mickelson or someone who's on, who's refereeing a major championship. But, you know, another referee gets called in for a second opinion. He backs the first guy up. He says, nope, change in 2023. When you're taken back on the line in relief, we're, we're going to require you to drop that ball on the line now. Whichever point we choose on the line, as far back as we want to go, we're going to have to drop that ball on the line. Now, unlike 2019, where we picked our own relief area, the relief area is now created when we drop the ball on the line, and then the ball can roll up to one club length in any direction, even closer to the hole now. So once we drop the ball, that's when we're going to activate the relief area. And wherever that ball rolls up to one club length, that's going to be the relief area we create. So Phil, I don't think, was aware of that change for 2023. He still thought he got that club length allowance to either side of the line. Sounds like he thought he got too many club lengths from either side of the line there. But We'll give give Phil a little break. He's got a lot on his mind these days uh, other than that. But uh, well summed up. Okay, uh, let's move on. Um, Again, these are... Uh, debated rules that are kind of always up for debate, or at least seem to have been major topics of debate in the last several years. And this one uh, doesn't come up a lot, but is pretty regular, is the long putter. Um, when it comes up, it's usually directed at Bernhard Langer. So if Bernhard Langer wins, that's when people get all frothing at the mouth again and say, we got to do something about this, particularly if he's anchoring, which if he is anchoring, he is violating this rule. Um, I won't, we won't, uh, I won't try to take that one on, but again, this is one of those, you know, the rules are stupid. Why is, why is the USGA taking away my enjoyment of the game by legislating? This is a no harm, no foul rule. It's for the average player. Uh, interestingly, um, George HW Bush, the first Bush president actually wrote a letter to the USGA advocating for them not to change this rule because he was one of those who liked the long anchored putter. So again, I think as we settle in today in 2023, I happen to think they've got it exactly right. Um, And I say exactly, there's no perfect here. Uh, Some people don't like the arm lock and say, you know, we ought to get rid of that. Uh, You have to draw the line somewhere. And I think they've drawn it in the correct spot where if you have a third point of contact or you want to describe it or kind of when you're anchoring it against your torso, your belly, you clearly are creating um, a stabilizing influence and it's no longer a free flowing stroke. So I, again, it's, you look at the posters that try to, you know, capture, um, you know, what is correct and what isn't. And as you watch the PJ tour today, I don't get sick to my stomach anymore when I see, see that going on. And, and again, I think it's, uh, it's pretty clear to me the best players in the world are still putting pretty conventionally. Cam Smith, uh, if you watched him this past week at the PGA, the guy made everything, and he's not, he's not arm-locking, and he's not using the Siwoo Kim, Bernhard Langer approach either. So a much debated rule, but I think we've got it right. I was just thinking while you were talking there, not that I wasn't listening to you, but yeah, I was I'm, thinking while you we were talking there, <laughs> have we – have we had a major championship winner with a long putter since Adam Scott? Yeah, I was going to say Adam Scott stands out because that but was one. Sin, but since yeah, Adam no, Scott, I don't, I don't think we've had exactly. I, I was trying to think. You know, the recent years I can remember pretty well, but the 14, 2015, 2016, 2017, those, those kind of years are a little hazy to me. Not that I don't remember those. Well, I know Keegan Bradley was a belly putter. He was two thousand two thousand eleven well, though. Yeah, Adam Scott was two thousand. 13, yeah, I believe. Yeah. And that was, 
I can't lose track. Was that was he anchoring then? Was he actually, or was that after the anchor? The the no, uh, I thought that the I thought anchor. I thought that was during the 2012 revision. Yeah. At any rate, you're right though. I mean, the 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 fact of the matter is, the best putters in the world do not arm lock. They don't try to use the broomstick. Um, they're not emotionally bankrupt yet, and they they just you know again. Um, so to me, um, I think we got it right. That's the bottom line. And um, you know, for those that are still think you can anchor or should be able to anchor, and and again, if if that's what keeps you from playing keeps you playing golf. By all means, have at it. Just don't play in a tournament. <laughs> well, I'll, actually, I'll, I'll give a little bit of a local shout-out here. Our 2022 CGA Super Senior Amateur Champion, David Nelson, uses a long putter. Mm-hmm. And so it's, you know, on that level, you know, we, competitive golf is competitive golf, but, you know, in the various levels of competitive golf, there still seems to be some success for some people. Oh, yeah. Using, and, and again, using with, that equipment. And what I understand about Dave and I may not, so if Dave's listening, we'll have to make sure he listens now. We'll say we, we featured him on this week's or this month's Spirit of the Game, is practicing. And it's not so much that he needs it. It's just I can't practice and bent, bent over that long and, and uh, went to the long putter for that reason rather than for, you know, stabilizing reasons. Sure. All right. What's next? So this is kind of the the... the the coup de gras here, I guess, or the or the finish up. The, we've reached the, the top of the mountain with our <laughs> our debates, but it's a little bit of a two part. We'll we'll start on we'll ease into it, then we'll get to the the one that everyone knows is coming. But it it, it seems like people, and this goes back to where you say you know with the aerationals, oh, you're not guaranteed a perfect lie, or people think you're always entitled to having that ball on grass and a perfect lie and. You know, if it's less than perfect, you automatically go, you, sn- you snap in your head, oh, I'm entitled to relief. I, sh- I should be getting relief for this. Now, especially in competitive or high-level golf, I think a lot of players immediately think, you know, oh, wait, do I, I should get relief for this or do I get relief for this or, you know, whatever the case might be. And I think that becomes something that people debate so much. Is this GUR? Should this be GUR? Is this ground under repair? Or, you know, is this an abnormal course condition? That That is a debate in itself, is the player's misunderstanding of the world of the word abnormal course condition. They think that every anything that's less than perfect on the golf course is automatically, oh, that's abnormal. Which, you know, pick up pick up the definition section once and go look up abnormal course condition for me. But tree roots or, you know, ground that's less than perfect or something that's in, you know, or tire ruts or something like that that people think should be ground under repair that's not ground under repair by the default of what, of what we define GUR as. And tree roots I hear come up all the time because, oh, I, I, shouldn't, I shouldn't have to hit off something that's going to damage my club or like, you know, rocks in, you know, that are under the ground or something that's, you know, oh, I don't pay for clubs like the pros do. I shouldn't have to hit off that. I'm going to take relief or I should get relief. Well, not exactly. It's the nature of being an outdoor sport. Every course is different. Not every course is the same condition. Not every course is the same, you know, features or natural objects you come across on each course. Every course is different. The ground is always going to be different. And if we were going to take every slight imperfection off each golf course, we'd, we would lose a lot of what the rules are based around. Yeah. Um, so, 
I think this is a place where you kind of have a divide between the where the, there's a line in the sand between rules officials and golfers. And um, I think those of us that are on this side of the fence will put ourselves on the rules official side that that's just us on our high horse talking about, you know, uh, you know, the way the game was meant to be played, play the balls that lies, the course as you find it. So as we uh, enter into the topic you've alluded to of divots and fairways, um, this is a topic, it's amazing to me how divisive and debatable this topic is and how vehement people become about that should be ground under repair. And despite our best efforts, and I'm going to use the hour to describe rules officials and our perspective, um, and you talk about light bulbs going off, we use all kinds of tactics to try to make our point. Um, when is a divot not a divot? You know, every time you end up with a ball in the fairway, um, a player is going to claim um, that some form of divot relief if it's if it's less than a perfect lie. That's, you know, you'd think that would convince most people. And I think most people who are on that side of the fence have never worked as a rules official and have never had to be there on the receiving end of an argument where you're telling a player no relief. Do that once, and I think you'll have a much greater appreciation for why this would be so untenable to grant relief for divots and fairways. And when you have people like Jack Nicholas and others saying this should be ground under repair, um, it's, it's just, it's, it's very frustrating. And I think we have a tendency as rules officials to kind of become frustrated, impatient, and almost condescending when we say, well, if you hit your ball in the rough and you get a good lie, you don't step on it and give yourself a bad lie. And again, I said that with an intended sort of tone of voice, because uh, I think it does come across as condescending. But that is that it's very I mean, to me, that is golf. That, to me, is the summation of the game. You get good breaks. You get bad breaks. And you have to accept them. And it would just it would absolutely destroy the game um, if you were to, you know, it's more than a slippery slope at that point. If you, if you said, okay, divots and fairways. And, again, where are you going to draw the line? Is it sand-filled divots? So, again, the reason I think we get so adamant about this is because as rules officials, we understand just how important that principle is and how unworkable our jobs would be if we were to even begin to open that door. Yeah, it's, you know, I go back to something where I was told a long time ago when we're talking about GUR, you know, when we're deciding do you market, do you not market, you know, what is GUR, do you define something as this way? I always try to think in the back of my head before I mark something or before we're deciding what is GUR is, is this part of the challenge of playing the course? Mm-hmm. And again, going back to being an outdoor sport and, you know, having to deal with the bad breaks and the good breaks you get, and the ball is just going to, you're going to go play the ball where it lies and you're going to play the course as you find it playing, you know, up against a divot or something that's less than ideal is just part of the challenge of playing the course. And now, again, there's things that come up that, of course, they're not part of the challenge of playing. A massive hole in the middle of the fairway from where a pipe burst. Of course, that's not going to be part right. of the challenge of playing the course. That's going to be marked as GUR. Playing up against a tree root that that tree has been growing there for 50 years, that's just part of the challenge of dealing with the golf course the way it's found. Mm-hmm. So I, th- I think that what is what is and what is not the challenge of playing the golf course, that plays a part into it. 
And another argument I heard about the divots in the fairway, and if a player got relief from every divot they came across, it would somewhat de-incentivize people from repairing divots. Mm-hmm. You know, why why should I repair why should I repair a divot? I'm going to get relief from it anyways, or the next guy's going to get relief from it, and he's going to get to place it or drop it in a different spot. So why should I? Yeah, maybe maybe I'll help the guy out behind me by not replacing it. So that would, and I don't think that's exactly you know, 100% true. But Well, and as a former caddy, uh, I pride myself on my ability to repair a divot, and it drives me crazy, I have to confess, when, and it seems to be pretty much the standard now, is not to put the, the turf back. And again, depending on the time of year, depending on how, you know, how much water is being put down, and I'm by no means an agronomist, but uh, as a golfer, um I want to have, I always repair the divot. I put the turf back and then fill in the sand around it. And it, even if the turf isn't going to, um, uh, you know, heal, I would much rather play off that surface if I'm the next player behind me. And frankly, before sand filled divots, uh, good players, you know, that it's amazing to me how skilled these guys are. Uh, I'm talking about now at the PJ tour level, the biggest complainers who want to see this change if they can get clean contact on the back of a ball, they're going to be just fine, even if it's in a hole. Um, that's something that they can overcome. Um, but I promise you, if we are at the U.S. Open here in a couple weeks and a player at L.A. Country Club and a prominent player at a prominent time hits a ball into a sand-filled divot, this debate is right back to the top of the list. We're going well, to be here and getting an earful once again. I think every... Every time we have a rules revision year, so last couple last couple of times we had it, 2016, 2019, and then this year, 2023, I think every time we have a revision year and changes come out and repair, relief from divots is not included in those changes, it, it again, it fires up that same – the rules are stupid crowd. Yep. They come out every four years or anytime something comes up, but specifically when the revisions come out and it's not part of the revisions – and you would think by now, however many revisions we've had in the last 20, 30 years, you would think we, they would get the point. It's not, it's not, gonna, it's not coming up. It's not going to happen. Well, one of my favorite quotes uh, when it comes to the rules is by Richard Francis, who chaired the Rules Committee in the early 1900s, and he said, those who, paraphrasing, those who question a rule of golf are questioning the sane and sensible judgment of generations of golfers. So when you question a rule and say it's stupid, just remember there's a lot of people that came ahead of you that arrived at that conclusion. And all the rules of golf are are answers to questions. I like the way you said about 18 questions and playing the game. That's all the rules of golf are, are answers to questions that have been posed over generations. And I am just amazed at, at um, frankly, how well done they are. And so I've learned as I've gotten older and gained a little wisdom um, and doesn't mean I don't have question rules. We talked about that previously. There's rules I would change, but for the most part, I think they're pretty, pretty well done. Yeah, and exactly. It's it's why the old decisions book was all in forms of questions and answers. Mm-hmm. You know, if we go back and look at that book, they're all questions and answers for situations that have come up over time. And again, even today, that anytime something comes up rules wise, we most likely have an answer for it somewhere in rules one through 25. That's right. So I think that's all we got. I think that's, I think I that's think a wrap. Wraps. Another good uh, issue uh, or uh, episode of the spirit of the game. So tune in again. Uh, I'm sure we're going to have a nice U S open recap for July. 
Uh, but this is Ed Mate signing out. And Lewis Harry. Until next time.